Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We've reached Christmas. We're on the precipice of Christmas at any rate. We're looking forward to it just a few days ahead. And if you think about the promise of Christmas, I think it's fair to say that at its best, Christmas is a kind of invitation. Christmas is an invitation to believe and to rejoice. To believe and to rejoice. At its best, that's what Christmas is. If you put aside all of the distractions, all of the the commercialism, all of the things that, that we worry detract from the true meaning of Christmas, at its best, Christmas is an invitation to believe and to rejoice. If that's true, then on the other hand, at its worst, Christmas is, you might say, an occasion to rejoice, regardless of whether you believe or not. In other words, an occasion to feel the reaction without any attachment to the cause, to muster up the cheer without any commitment to the reason for celebration at this season. I say that's Christmas at its worst, not because I'm worried or want you to worry about the decline of the status of Christmas in our secularizing post-Christian culture. I don't say that's Christmas at its worst because I'm anxious that people are forgetting the reason for the season and they need to be reminded of what it's really all about. The reason I say that, that rejoicing without believing is Christmas at its worst is because to rejoice without believing is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. If you take into account the facts of Christmas, to rejoice without believing is tragic. Or in modern psychological terms, we're all committed to uh, speaking in psychobabble these days. We might say that to rejoice without believing is uh, being in denial. Being in denial, which is a problematic state to live your life in. But being in denial is something the Bible knows all about. You take a look at the prologue to John's gospel, these beautiful words heralding the incarnation, the coming of Christ into the world. You find that right there in the middle of the glory is this note of denial. So this is John chapter one, starting in verse nine, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you look at those words of John, you see both pieces of the puzzle, you see denial and you see belief side by side. Jesus made the world, but the world he made did not recognize him when he came into it. 
he came to his people. He came to save his people from their sin. But when he came, they did not receive him. Denial. But, John says, those who did believe were reborn spiritually. And this happened as a result of God's power, not theirs. And they became the children of God. So belief in the midst of denial and denial in the midst of belief. So as we think about our text this morning, as we think about these words in 2 Timothy, if we deny him, he also will deny us. There are two things, two points to consider. One is the danger of denial. And the other is the gift of acceptance. So we're going to look at the danger of denial and then the gift of acceptance. If you look over the entire text, verses 11 through 13, and kind of think about the structure of the song for a moment, you can see that the first two lines that we've already talked about, and the second two, they're a little bit different in character, right? The first two lines, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. These are talking about like positive things. They're talking about faithfulness. This is a song for martyrs, a person as their, their faith is tested, would cling to these words uh, to explain, to, to motivate their faithfulness. The reason why I endure, the reason why I remain faithful to Christ is because if I die with him, I will live with him. And if I endure, then I will reign. Positive. But now the song takes a turn and looks at the other side of the equation. We've gone from kind of the positive inducements what we might think of as the negative, the negative. The last two lines have to do with unfaithfulness, with denying Christ. So we need to reflect on the danger of denial, what it means to deny Christ. But before we do that, I just want to think about the idea of being in denial. As I said, we are, uh, we use a lot of terms that we've inherited from psychology And oftentimes when we psychoanalyze one another and and psychoanalyze ourselves, we don't use the terms in their precise clinical sense. We have more of a popular understanding of them. So when you talk about a friend of yours or someone that you know, and you say that person is in denial, what that means could be a number of things. Like there are a lot of people that we think of as being in denial, and it's just because they don't see things the way that we see them. But when we talk about being in denial, something more than just disagreement is involved. There's something, there's a relationship to reality that is called into question. Uh, a writer for Psychology Today described it this way, and she's writing here about kind of the, the, the mainstreaming of this idea of being in denial. She says, the notion that one is in denial seems to have taken on a life of its own as an agent of many ills and as a catchphrase for people who dismiss the implications of their behavior. Denial is attributed to people who do not want to acknowledge that bad stuff is occurring in their lives. We can deny a fact, deny responsibility, deny the impact of our actions, or deny what is really going on by hiding from our feelings. In any case, when we use denial to defend ourselves or cope with what we feel, we contradict the reality of a situation or attempt to adjust to a circumstance 
by neglecting its impact. So when you say your friend is in denial, the reason you, you, you use that term exactly is they're, they're rejecting reality. They're refusing to deal with the facts on the ground. They're acting as if this bad thing isn't happening. They're acting as if their actions don't have the impact that they really do. There's a failure to see the world for what it really is. And that sense of denial has become really powerful rhetorically for us in our sort of culture wars these days. You don't want to be labeled, for example, as a, a Holocaust denier, right? For years, that's kind of been the, the, the gold standard for craziness. But because of the rhetorical power of that accusation, we've kind of taken the denier part and we've applied it to all sorts of things that we disagree about. So it's possible to be a denier of all kinds of things. You might be a climate denier. These days, you might be a COVID denier. And the point of using the word denier to describe the person is to take the shame of the one kind of denial and apply it to people in other kinds of disagreements as well. We have, so to speak, weaponized the idea of denial to use against other people, to use against one another. As a Christian attempting to live faithfully in our culture, you yourself may be subject to the label of being a denier. You might have been accused of denying science. You might be, because of your belief in a creator, accused of denying uh, what I would call the meaninglessness of the uncreated world, acting as if there's some purpose or plan in the world around you as a kind of denial in the eyes of many people. You deny the fact that morality is just a social construct, you deny the fact that all religions are just myths that were invented to comfort the weak before we knew better. You're in a state of denial. You're not seeing reality for what it really is. But as I said before, and as John's prologue shows, the idea of denial, Scripture is no stranger to that. Scripture is no stranger. And this is one of those instances where the accusation that's leveled against believers is one that the Bible turns back and uses against the accuser. It says, wait a second. If you want to talk about who's in denial, you need to consider yourself. Because your insistence on meaninglessness, on the uncreated world, your insistence on moral relativism, on the idea that whatever the Bible says is true doesn't really matter, these are symptoms of denial. These are results of not seeing the world as it really is. Ironically, the attacks on Christianity for being a denial, we might call again, using our pop psychology, transference. Where someone who's struggling to conceal the ultimate reality of the world that they live in attributes to others that act of denial they themselves are guilty of. When we think about denial, especially in a New Testament context, there is actually a picture of what denial is, what it means to deny Christ. And if you look at the, the instances in the Bible where this term is used, you kind of get a profile of what it is that's being spoken of. So the verb that's translated denial here in our text, that same word is used, obviously, 
in the story of Peter's denial of Christ. We touched on that last week. The idea that, that, that Peter, who was this great apostle, uh, and, and he truly was, but even he denied Christ. And the very same word is used. So it's not just an accident of translation. What Peter does in that crucifixion narrative is deny Christ in the way that you shouldn't. He rejects that association. He acts as if, as he says, I do not know him. I do not know him, echoing the words of John's prologue. Ironically, if you flip ahead in your Bible to the book of Acts, you go to the account of Pentecost, Peter, as he's preaching, uses that very word. When he describes the the judgment of Christ and when the people condemn Christ before Pilate, he says they denied him exactly the way that Peter himself did. You flip ahead a little bit more in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first martyr, we're talking about a martyr song here, Stephen, who was martyred for his faith, uses this term again in describing the people. He says that they denied, they rejected Moses, who was sent by God, and then he says, as your fathers did, so do you. In other words, you have rejected one greater than Moses. You've done the very same thing. So Stephen has this idea of rejection, of denial in mind as he is killed. Paul himself, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8, says that a person who doesn't provide for his household, for his family, is denying the faith, that he's worse than an unbeliever. And that points us to another thing here, which is that denial isn't just something you do with your lips, something you can do with your actions as well. In 2 Timothy 3, 5, Paul tells us to avoid people who appear to be godly, but deny the power of godliness through their actions. He tells Titus the same thing. He warns Titus about people who profess God, but deny him through their works in Titus 1, 16. And then in Titus 2, 12, Paul says that God's grace trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly passion. So using it the other way, to reject everything but God, so to speak. As you think about that, you start to understand that that denial, as it's used here, has two aspects. Like One is denial is rejection. To deny Christ is to reject him. Anything that we deny in this sense, we reject, we refuse to acknowledge. So it's personal in that way, the rejection of Christ, the rejection of the reality of his kingdom, a refusal to believe in him. That's what it means to deny Christ. And that denial, this is the second thing, it can be implicit or explicit. We can reject Christ in word explicitly. I can get up and say, as Peter does, I do not know him. But I can also do this other implicit denial where I claim to know him but I act as if I don't. I don't follow him with my actions. And that too is a kind of denial. That's what denial is. And the question is, what is the danger there? What is the danger of denial? Well, here the answer comes from the lips of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 10 and verses 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
So you see the reciprocity there. Right? If we acknowledge Christ before men, Christ acknowledges us before the Father. If we deny Christ before men, Christ will deny us before the Father. What is the danger of denial? The danger of denying Christ is that Christ will deny you. As the song says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. And when I hear those words, and and when I contemplate singing those words, they make me tremble. These are words I don't want to sing. There's something horrible about the thought. But I understand that, that for many people, it's not that way. For many people, it just seems like common sense. Well, sure, I don't believe in your imaginary God. He's going to deny me. It's not a big deal. I don't take that stuff seriously, right? So, whatever. But when I hear those words, I tremble at them. If there's something there, that, that, that idea that, that if we deny him, he will deny us, that provokes uh, fear. Fear. In the ancient church, the great preacher of the Eastern Church, John Chrysostom, wrote a homily about these words. And it's especially about this idea of the, you might think of it like the parallel there. If you deny me, then I'll deny you. And it might seem kind of a a one-to-one, quid pro quo. Yeah. He says, the retribution is not equal, though it seems so expressed. It seems as if you do this. Christ does that, and there's an equality to those actions. But he says, for we who deny him are men, but he who denies us is God. And how great is the distance between God and man, it is needless to say. Besides, we injure ourselves. Him we cannot injure. When we deny him, we injure ourselves, because we have no one to speak for us acknowledge us in the presence of the Father. So to put it really simply, the reason we rejoice at Christmas is that Jesus is our Redeemer, and Jesus, our Redeemer, will acknowledge us, represent us, or speak for us before the Father. He will intercede for us in a way that means we don't get punished for our sins. Like, he has taken that burden for us. And that makes all the difference. That gives us reason to rejoice. But if you deny him, then there is no reason to rejoice. Because the rejoicing that we do at Christmas, that joy is a reaction to this good news of redemption. If you deny the good news, there is no reason to manufacture cheer. There is nothing to celebrate. It doesn't need to be that way. It doesn't need to be that way. This Christmas for you can be a time of justified joy. If you receive the Son and acknowledge Him and rejoice in the gift of acceptance, then the joy that we feel at Christmas is real and there's nothing manufactured about it. That brings us to the gift of acceptance, which is what this song is really speaking to us about. Sure, there is a warning about the danger of denial, but that warning is actually another way of signaling to us the greatness of the gift of acceptance. 
I mentioned John Chrysostom earlier. In the opening of his homily, he makes this interesting little observation on human nature. And since we've already done some pop psychology, I thought it was appropriate to uh, get, let's say, some ancient Christian insight into human nature. Chrysostom says, many of the weaker sort of men give up the effort of faith and do not endure the deferring of their hope. They seek things present and form from these their judgment of the future. I think there's some insight there. You want to understand why we deny Christ. If you understand why we fail to endure, why do we, as he says, give up on the effort involved in faith? It is because, as Chrysostom says, Faith requires us to defer our hope, to defer our hope, to fix our focus on the future. Instead of finding our comfort, our reward in the present, in the broken values of this world, in bondage to corruption, and then judging the future based on these values, faith teaches us to find our comfort in the future kingdom, the world that is to come, and then to judge the present based on the values of the future, the values of eternity, of the age to come. That's a fundamental difference in how we're called to live our lives. Our lives are lives of deferred hope. That's the effort of faith. And this martyr's hymn gives flesh to that deferred hope. When we sing, if I deny him, he will also deny me. We are in a sense singing, I will sacrifice this present life for the sake of the life to come. In other words, we're not contemplating denial, which is unthinkable. We're contemplating sacrifice, the sacrifice that, that is required of us by the gift of acceptance. So I know it sounds Negative. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But this is one of those instances where a positive point is being made through a negative expression. There are positive things that are being spoken of here through negative words by contemplating the consequences of denying Christ. We come to understand better why we must acknowledge him. Right. So there's a uh, when I say a theological point, and then also a more experiential point to think about. First, the theological point. All those who acknowledge the Son are assured of the Father's acceptance. All those who acknowledge the Son are assured of the Father's acceptance. But this is what John says, not in his prologue, but in his first epistle. First John 2.23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. That sounds like a paraphrase of our text. But as he continues, he says, whoever confesses the son has the father also. What seem like words of of unassurance or anti-assurance become words of assurance by contemplating kind of their opposite, right? No one who denies the son has the father, but don't do that. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. And that pattern of of stating the warning and then following with the blessing is one you should recognize from the Old Testament. When we did our series earlier in the year through the Psalms in Psalm chapter 2, 
we saw a very similar thing happen at the end of Psalm chapter 2. Here's the warning. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Like, wow, that's a side of Jesus I'm not used to hearing about. Certainly not at Christmas. But then the psalmist continues. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Is the purpose of the words to uh, revel in the wrath directed at those who deny him? No. It is to assure and invite us and encourage us to be one of those who take refuge in him and are blessed. That's the theological point. There's something, an assurance to cling to, even in these words that speak of the consequences of denial, of unfaithfulness. They remind us of Christ's faithfulness to us. There's also an emotional point, maybe a point of conviction, kind of a heart point. And I think this is significant because remember, this is a martyr's song. This is a song that's meant to be sung when the world is testing and trying you, when your faith is, is on the line. And in moments like that, uh, you could be forgiven for not being able to come up with precise theological constructions and, and dot all of your I's and cross all of your T's on your theology, right? But your heart sings of faithfulness. That emotional point that rings through here is this. If Christ acknowledges me before the Father, how can I deny him? Before men. If Christ acknowledges me before the Father for eternity, how in the world, for any consideration or for any reason, could I deny him? It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. So, in the moment of trial and testing, by reflecting on the consequences of denial, the martyr is assured of the acceptance of Christ, of the faithfulness. Of Christ. I mean, consider this. One way to endure something faithfully is to remind yourself of the reward that you've been promised. If if there's a struggle, if there's a temptation, if you are being uh, pushed, you might focus, as we said last time, on the future. Focus on the reward that you have in heaven, and that could keep you faithful. That could keep you feeling strong. It gives you a reason to sacrifice. But another way to remain motivated in the fight, another way is to remember the fate that you have been rescued from. And that motivates you to continue as well. We sing in the song of of denial. If we deny him, he will deny us. Remember, this is a moment of testing and faithfulness. The fear is not, oh, maybe I will. Maybe I'll deny him after all. The point is to remember the great catastrophe that he has preserved us from. He acknowledges me before the Father. How can I deny him before men? I can't do it. And reflecting on the gift of acceptance in Christ gives us both the positive encouragement and the negative. It reminds us of the reward that has been promised, and it reminds us of the perils that we have been spared by Christ. We rejoice 
because we will be raised in Christ, because we will reign with him. And we rejoice because he acknowledges us before the Father, which means our sins are forgiven. So the conclusion is to believe and to rejoice. The gift of acceptance is the gift that Christ brings into the world. And it's the reason for our rejoicing. This gift of acceptance in Christ is what has forged us into a body. The reason why, despite our various backgrounds and experiences, we have been brought together and made into one body in Christ is because of that acceptance that we have in him, which is a gift. And in the spirit of Christmas, it's a gift that we do not want to keep for ourselves. It is not a gift to be hoarded. It's a gift to be shared. It's a gift that's not just for us. It's a gift that is for them too. It's a gift not just for us, but for you. No one hearing these words has to think that, that if we deny him, he will deny us, speaks the final word on my life any more than it did on Peter's denied him, but now lives and reigns with him. If there is acceptance in Christ, it is a gift and it is yours to have and to possess. Acknowledge Christ before men and he will acknowledge you to the Father. My point here, and I hope it's clear, is not to say, if you don't believe in Jesus, then you should have a miserable Christmas and stop rejoicing. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it's improper for you to feel joy right now. If you're not believing in Jesus, what I'm saying is this gift is for you too. And there's no reason for you to have to have a a season of empty rejoicing of manufactured cheer. You can rejoice because you're acknowledging the reality of the cross. You can rejoice because the creator has come and you know him. You can rejoice because Christ has come to you and you have received him. It's as simple as that. Don't deny him. Accept him and experience the peace that the angels announced at his birth. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast. 